This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout, which is on CBSN. More than 75 radio stations across this great country, including Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and of course on all great podcast platforms. However you find the show, we thank you for joining us. One of my Amer- favorite American writers and philosophers is Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he urged people who read him to speak the rude truth. Here's a rude truth about me. I'm a fool. Why am I a fool? Because during our continuous CBS News live coverage of the storming, the criminal desecration of the United States Capitol, I said out loud, that was unimaginable to me. Honestly, Major? Unimaginable? When there was a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan? When volunteer American citizens working as vote counters in Maricopa County, Arizona, had to be escorted to their cars because they otherwise would have been menaced by a mob outside of the place they were counting legally cast votes in a presidential election? When Georgia election officials urged the country and the president of the United States to tone down his rhetoric, or people would get hurt, someone will get shot? Unimaginable, Major? Seriously? This is what I mean when I say I was a fool. I was a fool not to understand what was being said, who was listening, and what might happen. The nation saw what happened on January 6th. We're not going to talk all about that in this episode, but we're going to refer to most of the incendiary lies, falsehoods, and malevolent grifting that went on around the topic of the presidential election of 2020. Our guest is David Becker. I will let him introduce himself. For those of you familiar with my other podcast, The Debrief, and our CBS News continuous coverage of election 2020 and its aftermath, you've come to know David Becker. David it's good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Tell my audience what your title is and what your experiences are. Sure. Uh, it's great to be with you, too, again, Major. I am um, the executive director and founder of the nonpartisan nonprofit Center for Election Innovation and Research, and we work all over the country to help elections run better. We work with election officials at the state and local level, Republicans and Democrats and uh, nonpartisans. Um, and 
I've worked in elections for about 22 years. I spent many years at Pew Charitable Trust uh, leading their elections program. And prior to that, I served for about seven years as a uh, voting rights attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department during both the Clinton and W. Bush administration. So I've been doing this a while. And you are familiar with advocacy in election cases, meaning where genuine evidence of fraud has been detected and litigated. Are you not? Oh, very much so. I mean, I've litigated some of them myself, uh, both on the um, plaintiffs or government side and on the uh, defense side. And so based on that experience, you know what a real case looks like and you know what a phony case looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Any any litigator worth anything knows that those kinds of things. This is a uh, you know, this, this litigation season has been uh, probably a lesson to everyone about that. And what do you mean by that in the sense that the cases brought after the election of 2020 were what? Fill in that blank. Uh, frivolous would probably be kind. Um, the, uh, he- here's, here's what people need to know about how litigation works in any context, and certainly in the civil rights or, litig- or, or elections or voting rights context. Um, lawyers evaluate the strength of the case before they ever get into a court. You don't say, I don't like something and file a case and then hope you can get enough evidence later on to prove what you uh, prove your point. You do your due diligence. You figure out whether the case should be brought or not. A lot of the best litigation is done before you ever file a case because you decide not to file it because it's not a good case and because you're not going to be able to make statements to the court that can be supported, which could ultimately lead to sanctions or disbarment, which every lawyer is very wary of. Um, And so uh, we have a situation here this this election season where uh, a couple of major flaws were uh, occurred with the litigation. One, uh, there, a lot of litigation was about rules that had been in place around the election that had been in place for months, if not years, and had not been challenged in court or had been upheld by courts. In almost every case, they had, those laws had been passed by Republican legislatures. In many of those cases, they had been signed by Republican governors and enforced by Republican secretaries of state. So the fact that someone would wait until an election that they lost to bring a claim is really problematic for the courts, Uh, especially if in the meantime, their side had won many elections, um, as was the case in many of these places. Right. And when you go to the court and say, my constitutional rights have been violated or compromised, the court says, where were you before? Where is the evidence of that violation? And if you can't assert any, you don't have standing to complain. Am I correct about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, standing is a separate issue. It, it really Standing is really, are you the right person to be bringing this case? You can't just file a generalized grievance. You know, I'm, I'm the attorney general of, of Texas. I don't like the way Pennsylvania runs their elections. You don't, you don't have standing to do that. Um, but secondarily, you know, a great example of this is in Pennsylvania. And we heard it last night um, when uh, Senator Hawley um, shamefully raised questions about Pennsylvania's mail voting rules. Um, people should know that those mail voting rules were passed virtually unanimously by Republicans in the Pennsylvania House in October of 2019. They had been in place for over a year. If someone had an issue with those laws, they had a full year to bring a case so that election officials could have fashioned a remedy that would have worked if a court found that they were problematic. 
What happened is they waited until after the election that they lost. In the meantime, by the way, President Trump won a primary in Pennsylvania under those laws. Um, and they waited until after the election. When they lost, all of a sudden they had a problem with laws that had been in place for a long time. And when the, that litigation was brought, they actually lost on the merits there too. I mean, that was, they both lost on the fact of this, this doctrine this, uh, in litigation called latches, L-A-C-H-E-S, um, which means, uh, why didn't you come sooner? Why'd you wait so long? Um, and, but they're also lost on the merits. And uh, so that's a great example of how you just cannot sit on a claim and wait until something goes, something happens that you don't like. Or you can't sit on a claim and say, oh, shoot, we lost. We better claim something now to get back that loss and turn it into a victory. That's not how it works. That's exactly right. So let's talk about Pennsylvania in another regard, because Senator Pat Toomey, in response to his Republican colleague, Josh Hawley of Missouri, said you complain about the uh, the decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to allow mail-in ballots to be counted within three days after election day, if they are properly received. And yet, those did not have anything to do with the final margin and would not, in their totality, have undercut that final margin in Pennsylvania. True? That's right. There, there was, um, that's kind of a half-hearted objection that some of the uh, Republicans who don't like the result have brought. Um, just to remind everyone, what happened was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that, um, especially during the pandemic, and given the concerns with the Postal Service, they were going to extend the receipt deadline for ballots for three days to the Friday after the election, so long as they were cast on or before Election Day and that, that they should be counted. And um, I'll be honest with you, I think that that Supreme Court decision was a close one. I think it, I think you can absolutely support what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did, but you could also it wouldn't have been an abuse of justice if it had gone the other way. And, um, and then it was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, which is the last appeal you can make after a state Supreme Court if there is a federal question involved in any way. And the United States Supreme Court at that time only had eight justices and they ruled four to four. Um, and that meant that the decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court stands. But a four to four decision means that um, it, it, it really holds no precedential value. Right. So if, if later on the Supreme Court rules 5, 4, 6, 3 or something else in the opposite direction, that could hold sway. So there was some concern. Right. Hold, David, hold that thought for a second. Yeah. We'll pick up on the other side of the break. I'm Major Garrett, election law expert. David Becker is our special guest. Back with segment two of The Takeout in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout 
with Major Garrett. Welcome back, David Becker, election law expert for CBS News and someone who's done this work for many, many years. Both sides of the cases in election law, meaning those who are defending, those who are... uh, What's the proper term in an election law case, David? I mean, I've, everyone's a defendant and a plaintiff, but I, whatever. Yeah, usually a plaintiff, a defendant. I mean, they're, they're, and, and they can take different roles depending upon what the relief is, is right, being right. sought. But, you know, I, I, I've, been on, I've been in a lot of cases. A lot of cases. That's what, that's what matters. So quickly uh, buttoning up the situation in Pennsylvania. It was one of the two objections heard and debated by Congress. Thoroughly smacked down on a bipartisan basis in the chambers that matter, the House and the Senate, but button up Pennsylvania quickly. Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out, the, 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 there was concern that the late arriving ballots might be larger than the margin of victory, in which case we'd have some uh, ambiguity about who won and whether or not the Supreme Court would rule. But uh, as it turned out, the election officials in the state of Pennsylvania did an amazing job of getting everyone to turn their ballots in by election day. And although the margin was over 80,000 votes between Biden and Trump, the number of late arriving ballots, ballots that came in between election day and the Friday after was only about 10,000. So they were completely irrelevant to the uh, to the ultimate determination of the presidential election. And let's all just say one more thing about Pennsylvania. It's not as if the Republican litigants before the Supreme Court in the state of Pennsylvania didn't get anything or got completely taken to the cleaners. They won one case they thought could be potentially very important about upholding procedures which would invalidate mail-in ballots on what you could fairly describe as a technicality if it did not have a security envelope. If it was legally and justly filled out in every other way but did not have the security envelope, it would be invalidated. That was something the Supreme Court said. That's what the law says. That's what we're going to apply. And Republicans won on that. So it's not as if they were skunked on these issues of applying existing law. And in this case, because so many people were getting used to mail-in voting for the first time, rigorously so, in a way that would have clearly taken out ballots that were accidentally not included in that security envelope, but in every other way filled out properly. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you raise a really good point. In that very same decision about the uh, late arriving mail ballots, there was also a part of it that said if a ballot is not placed in an inner secrecy sleeve, an inner secrecy envelope, that it should not be counted. And actually, a lot of people, especially on the Democratic side, didn't like that ruling at all. But um, so it was a mixed decision. Both sides got something they wanted in that decision. Something also very important about Pennsylvania and the ability for Republicans to be fully heard there. Um, It's actually the one state where Trump won a case in the post-election litigation. It is it is the one out of 62 decisions that they won a very small technical um, decision in the Pittsburgh area that affected only around a thousand ballots and whether or not someone should have the right to cure them at, at a particular time. Um, and honestly, they probably should have won that, that lawsuit. Um, so Pennsylvania, I mean, I, I think I, and I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, it's the place of their greatest success. Yeah. One for 62 or one for 63, I guess, uh, in the, in the record books, uh, 63 cases, one victory, 62 defeats. And, That speaks to something we also heard from those who wanted to object on the Republican side. The president and his campaign and allies never got their day in court. What? You said it best last night. Um, They didn't get their day in court. They had 60 plus days in court. Um, this, This is absolutely true. 
there were there were dozens of cases before almost 100 judges in over half a dozen states. And yet, David, on the House floor in the wee hours of the morning on the East Coast, House Republicans said all these people who filed affidavits under threat of perjury never got heard. I heard that a half a dozen times, if not more. Yeah, there is this myth going around that all of these cases were thrown out on these technicalities and the evidence and the merits were never considered. That is 100% false. In in many cases, all of these affidavits were considered. In many cases, the lawyers for Trump and his allies were unwilling to submit these affidavits because they had fatal flaws or were highly incredible. you know, they redacted the identities of some of their own witnesses in these in in these statements in many cases. Think about that for a second. You can't put an anonymous person on the stand and cross-examine them. It's ridiculous. I mean, so you so, can in the theater of the mind, David. <laughs> you can do it on social media, yeah. right? You can do it in a speech outside a landscaping company, but you can't do it in court. Right. And and this is and this is one of the things, you know, I I, I noted um, in a recent Twitter thread, there was uh, there were three cases that really stuck out to me. One in Wisconsin, one in Pennsylvania and one in Georgia. And there were a couple of things in common with all of them. One, all of them were decided on the merits. And two, they were all decided by Trump appointed judges. And the third thing they all had in common, the Trump campaign lost. Um, this was consistent in all of the litigation. You know, one of the things that came up yesterday, we consistently heard Senator Hawley say, this is my one chance to be heard on this issue. Ironically, he was saying this on cable news as he was being heard on this issue over and over and over again. But our federalist system doesn't allow someone in another state to tell some state that they don't live in how they're supposed to run their elections. And so you heard really great defense of the system, I think, last night from people like Senator Toomey who talked about the system in Pennsylvania and what had really happened in Pennsylvania. And similarly, you know, we, we're seeing this all over the country. Um, it, it's, I think it's really disturbing to see these myths take hold, but the fact is there has never been a presidential campaign that has had more of an opportunity to be heard in court by judges from across the political spectrum and present evidence than the Trump campaign. And I want to say to those who are watching or hearing my voice saying, well, Major, I'm not sure I trust you on this one. I'm not even quite sure I trust David Beck. I'd like to see someone maybe who I might consider, at least in theory or in past practice, sympathetic on some bigger issues with President Trump. All right, let me give you a name. Andrew McCarthy, he writes for the National Review, and he wrote... Numerous articles during the Mueller investigation about what he thought was going wrong with the Mueller investigation, how it was probably predicated on either misinformation, bad information, or bad motive, and that there were things about uh, the Trump conduct that were accused in a way that made it sound the absolute worst, and there could have been a reasonable set of explanations to explain it, to contextualize it. That is to say, he dug very deeply into the Mueller investigation and found things about it that he thought cast a harsher light on the Justice Department and the origins of that Mueller investigation than on the president himself. So take that for what it's worth. And now I urge you to read what he has written about this election contest process. He has several articles, one of which caught my eye very much, that said the following. Federal judges appointed by this president were prepared to review 
all stipulated facts in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, meaning the Trump campaign was invited to present its evidence in all three cases, the Trump campaign folded. David, you remember this, correct? Yeah, yeah absolutely. He's absolutely right. And, and I mean, this happened all over. Every time they would go on social media and say we're not being heard, they'd then go into court. In Pennsylvania, for instance, famously, Rudy Giuliani was representing, um, probably the first time he'd been in a courtroom in 25 years, he was representing the Trump campaign. And he himself admitted on the record, on audio, when asked by the court, is this a fraud case? He said, this is not a fraud case. They didn't have evidence of fraud. Um, that, of course, doesn't stop him from going on to social media later and saying, you know, take to the streets. Um, there's been a massive fraud that's occurred. I think, you know, Lindsey Graham's statements last night were very helpful um, and accurate and truthful, where he said Biden's win was 100% legitimate. And that's absolutely right. Joe, Joe Biden is a legitimate uh, president. He won a legitimate election. It was, it was a truthful statement late in coming, though. That's been clear for a very long time. And Lindsey Graham was not at the front of the line making sure that clarity was established. Let's, let's make sure that's uh, also said. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no question. I mean, this is look. We're we're in a dangerous period for the next uh, next several days uh, with a president who is untethered from reality. And I and I do want to say there are there's going to be a, rec- a reckoning overall over what's happened for the last four years. But right now, I'm just grateful for anyone who is willing to make us safer, to bring more confidence to the very secure process that occurred. And so I'll take what I can get right now. That's the voice of David Becker, our special guest this week. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. David Becker is our special guest, our CBS election law expert. Um, It seems like a... A thousand years ago, but on uh, election night, uh, there was a call by the Associated Press and Fox News in Arizona, and it upset the president and his campaign dramatically. That call held up. CBS didn't make it as rapidly as those other two news organizations, and it was close in Arizona, no question about it, and highly unusual looking at our recent presidential history for Arizona to go to President-elect Joe Biden, but nevertheless, it did. David, for those who are still curious about it, it was the first objection raised in the House and Senate yesterday. Talk to us about Arizona. Yeah, it was uh, it was an odd objection for them to start with. Of course, Arizona was the first alphabetically of the six states that that um, uh, Trump supporters were challenging because Biden won them. Um, apparently. But um, uh, and Arizona was the first state uh, listed that Biden had won, actually, after Alabama and Alaska. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, so they took their first shot at Arizona. It's got to be something wrong. Exactly. We got to understand a few things about Arizona. Arizona has a Republican dominated legislature. It has a Republican governor. All of its election laws have been passed by Republicans. They have been signed by Republicans. They have been enforced by Republicans until very recent history when in, in 2018, a Democratic Secretary of State came into power, uh, Secretary Hobbs, who has been, I think, faithfully executing the laws of the state of Arizona has worked very well with Governor Ducey. Another important thing about Arizona is Arizona, unlike a lot of states, saw almost no changes in its election procedures as a result of the pandemic. 
Arizona has been one of the states that was already at about 80% vote by mail. They've been doing mail voting for a very, very long time, very, very well. They have this down. And, and, and by the way, it's at least as, as popular amongst Republicans as it is with Democrats in that state. So it's been very popular. About 80% of people voted by mail. That number was higher this year, probably about 90% plus, uh, obviously due to the pandemic. But this didn't radically change any of their procedures, any of the timings, any of the way they do signature matching, any of the way people receive their ballots, any of the way people register to vote. These were all in place as these are the same rules that were in place in 2016 when uh, President Trump won Arizona. So it's a very odd objection from a from an objective point of view. And it's, it's more clear, it was much more political and not based on any actual improprieties that occurred in Arizona. Arizona's elections are run very, very well by um, predominantly Republicans in that state. And I want you to address, if you can, this thing that is probably the hardest to address because it is based entirely on a myth. But the myth goes like this. There's the ghost in the machine. The machine misread or overread or intentionally counted ballots for Biden that didn't exist. And the ghost in the machine is attributed to Dominion. Help my audience, because I'm sure they've heard something about that somewhere. Deal with that. Yeah, for a lot of years, many of us who work in elections were concerned about voting that was purely digital. Um, there was no paper ballot of record that we could go back and check. And in 2016, when Trump won the election, for instance, Georgia was entirely digital, no paper ballots. Much of North Carolina, which President Trump won, mostly digital, no paper ballots. Much of Pennsylvania, which President Trump won in 2016, mostly digital, no paper ballots. And Chris Krebs, the former head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, was fired by President Trump in the middle of November for saying the election was the most secure in history, accurately saying that, um, has put it best, I think, which is you can't hack paper. Paper is a permanent record. And what we've seen in states, whether it's Arizona, which is all paper, Georgia, which is all paper, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Nevada, I could go on and on, but every single battleground state, including ones President won, like Florida and North Carolina, um, are all paper. And what we've seen is that paper allows us to audit and recount those ballots. And if the, if the software got it wrong, we would discover it. We have seen audits in most all of these states. Georgia not only did an audit, they've done three counts of the presidential race, once entirely by hand with, with, with human teams. There, you can't hack that. That software did not count those ballots. Those were human beings. We know the counts were accurate in each of these states. You mentioned Georgia. Uh, you've had, you and I have had this conversation, but I want to share it with our audience. There is this thing propagated by the president on Twitter over and over and over again. It is one of the most desiccated bones of this election that he refuses to stop gnawing on, which is signature verification in Georgia. If anyone has watched the president's Twitter feed, even casually, they've seen this come up again and again. For the benefit of this audience, put that in context and then thereby to rest. Yeah, um, few things about that. And I encourage everyone to listen to the president's call with the Georgia Secretary of State as well. It's an Please. hour It's an hour that is uh, both shameful, but uh, very indicative of what, of what election officials have gone through. Um, 
Georgia has among the most secure and rigorous signature matching processes in the country. Uh, they, every person who requests a mail ballot has to uh, go through a proper either online or paper system to do that. They have to verify their identity at that point. They receive a ballot and when they return it, they have to sign that ballot. Those signatures get checked every step of the way. In Georgia, those signatures get checked twice. Election officials have been trained by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which I will tell you is one of the most robust, strong state-based bureaus of investigation in the country. It's very well known. Um, if you watch any movies like Richard Jewell or anything like that, you will see how strong this agency is. Um, and they've been checked multiple times. Georgia is the envy of a lot of other states with regard to how they do their signature matching. In addition, even though they were not required by law to, they went into Cobb County, one of the largest counties of the state after the election just a few weeks ago, and literally looked at every envelope and checked the signatures on those envelopes. What they found was a 99.99% proper signature match rate. And the two that weren't the only two ballots out of thousands and thousands of ballots, the two that didn't match, it wasn't because someone else had, had, had filled in the ballot. It was because the person had left something off of their envelope that should have been filled in. And they confirmed it was actually the right person who filled out the ballot. So they actually had a 100 percent in uh, secure rate on mail ballots in, in that county. Uh, people should be very, should feel extremely confident about the mail voting system in Georgia and in most other states that have similar situations. So we've gone through all the states, we've gone through all the circumstances, and I know you have a thing you believe quite passionately about this election, and I want to give you an opportunity to say it. There were a lot of challenges ahead of all of us for this election. How did the country do? Well, we, despite everything that we were facing, it wasn't just the pandemic, which was unprecedented. It was foreign interference that we were dealing with. If you think back a year ago, that's all we were talking about was the foreign interference and disinformation that we were going to face. Um, we had budgetary issues. Um, because of the pandemic, there were all of these expenses, expenses that states could not, um, uh, didn't have the money for, uh, PPE, uh, finding new polling places. There were about two thirds of poll workers had to be, couldn't work because they were at risk. So they had to recruit new poll workers. We saw all of these play out in the primaries as states were, were, were wrestling with this. We're trying to figure out how to hold an election with high turnout expected in a pandemic where we had to socially distance. And the fact is we came through with flying colors. This was a triumph of American democracy, public servants from across the political spectrum. It doesn't matter what states, deeply red states where Trump won, deeply blue states where Biden won. We were a success. We heard very little about lines. We heard very little about problems with the machines. This all worked better than any election in history. And this is with the highest turnout we'd ever seen. Two thirds of eligible voters in America turned out for this election. We have never seen a rate of turnout like that since women were granted the right to vote over hundred years ago. And the most voters, 160 million, that's, that's well over 20 million more that showed up than showed up in 2016. And Despite all of the success, despite the sacrifices made by election officials of both parties, despite the way voters really educated themselves and made sure they got their ballots in, we are seeing the president and his allies slander those individuals. We're seeing death threats being trained at those individuals. And it offends me. It gets, it gets me emotional to know how their lives have changed because of what the president is saying. That's the voice of David Becker. We'll continue that thought on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout. 
The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2021 at checkout. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, everyone, on CBSN. Great radio stations around the country, including Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and all the great podcast platforms. You are our earliest adopters. We thank you, as always. Also, just another pitch for my other podcast, The Debrief. Um, if you dig this show and you're listening or watching, so you must at some level, I think you will really, really, really enjoy The Debrief. It's one topic. We take a deep dive. It's an immersive experience. It's the best of podcasting I think you can find on serious topics. Uh, I will say that on my behalf because nobody else will. Give it a listen. Uh, David Becker is our special guest. David, I want you to continue that thought that you find the slandering of this election and the good people of this country, our friends and our neighbors who made it the success it was being threatened. Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned earlier the, uh, the plot to kidnap uh, the governor of Michigan um, those things have been fostering for some time, festering rather, for some time. Um, since the election, I've talked to dozens of election officials. I've actually heard some of these threats in some cases, some made by phone, some made by email, some made in other ways, some actually where um, uh, threatening individuals show up at election officials' homes with their families. And I'll tell you, uh, this, this isn't just Democrats. In fact, it's probably primarily Republicans. Um, whether it's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, who's spoken very eloquently about this, whether it's uh, Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt, one of the best in the business, a truly dedicated and even-handed and apolitical public servant when it comes to running elections. He had to move his family, including his young children, to, a, to an undisclosed location for a period of time. Um, I'm, I'm seeing this across the nation, um, and it's not just in some of the swing states. And some of it's, I've heard it in Florida. Um, I've heard it in other states. This is a shameful episode in American history. Um, it is directly tied to the domestic terrorism we saw at the Capitol on Wednesday. This all flows from the creation of an alternate reality, completely false alternate reality that is being spread by the president of the United States and his allies and being facilitated by social media platforms. Um, and Many of, the, many of the people ingesting this toxicity, um, I have sympathy for. I think they're victims in some ways. Not all of them. There are many who are, um, who are spreading this, who are acting in violent ways, and they're criminals. But there are many others who all they're hearing is that the election has been stolen, and, it, and it eventually they start believing it because it's being shared with them as, by the president of the United States. And that leads directly to the tragedy we witnessed at the Capitol. The tragedy, the desecration of the Capitol, the domestic terrorism, as you described, the insurrection, all of it, all of those words apply. Federal law will apply. 
There are requests to the FBI right now for identification of those caught on camera, and there are many. And I hope with every fiber in my being that those people who can be identified, who committed crimes with intent and malice, are identified, charged, and get their day in court. Because that needs to happen. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is, uh, you've used the term desecration. It's completely true. And it, and it, again, is tied back to the debasement of their office by certain members of Congress, um, spreading some of these rumors, telling, uh, leading people to believe falsely that, that um, January 6th and the ministerial act of counting the electoral votes was some opportunity for um, overturning the will of the people in the states for federalization of the Electoral College, which is one of the most anti-conservative things I can possibly imagine, um, that there was some magic cheat code in the Constitution that gave the vice president the ability to anoint a president in contravention of the will of the people. Um, this, this is a shameful episode in American history. It's one of the most shameful episodes I've ever seen. I was just telling my son um, this morning, uh, we were talking about this week. It's, as, as we're recording this, it's only Thursday, January 7th. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, you're going to remember this week your whole life. Yep. I mean, God willing, we will never again see something like this in our lifetime. And here's uh, one thing we should all take stock of. No one needs to dust for fingerprints on this one, do they, David? No. This, I, I mean, the, the, the responsibility for this resides... 100% with the current occupant of the White House. Let's be absolutely clear about this. He incited insurrection. He encouraged an attempted coup. And it was all because he could not process the idea that he lost an election, which he lost soundly. As, as we've discussed many times, this election was not close overall. Um, despite the fact that Republicans did very well on the rest of the ballot, one of the great ironies of, of their objections is that almost all of them were elected on the same ballots they were objecting to. Correct. And I urge those in the audience who are still curious about this, just do a little bit of uh, Googling on or whatever search engine you prefer for Chip Roy. He's a member of Congress on the House side, a Republican. He used to work for Ted Cruz, actually was his chief of staff. And he called their bluff earlier this week. He said, let's have a vote among those who want to invalidate these six swing states from those six swing states. Because if you are invalidating that election, you must therefore invalidate yours. Yeah. Guess what? Guess what, folks? They weren't ready to do that. He's been a real truth teller on this uh, patriot and uh, you know, I think, you know, yesterday we saw the newly elected congresswoman from northern Georgia, Congresswoman Green, stand up and she was asked and she objected to the um, Georgia um, election. She did, they did not have a senator who was willing to join that, fortunately. Um, but she was interviewed and asked about that earlier. And they asked, well, weren't you elected on the same ballots? And she just dismissed it and said, we're only challenging the president's race. Um, right. It's literally the same ballot, the same single piece of paper, the same machines, the same scanners, the same verification process, the same everything. So 
One of the things that courts ask litigants is, are you trying to mangle the law to your benefit? Answer in this case and many others, yes. Yeah, and we're fortunate their case was so bad. I mean, they were election officials did a very, very good job of buttoning down this election. This is the most secure and most importantly, transparent election we've ever had in our history. And I said, and this is this, this I'm almost afraid to say this. If it weren't for the um, the pandemic hitting earlier actually helped because it gave us the primaries to do a trial run. Gave us a little bit of time, work through a lot of things that were stressful, long lines, a lot of things we had to accustom ourselves to during the primaries. That's a good point, David. We got to wrap it up for our radio audience. For those listening to you on radio, this is it for the program. Please join us again next week for those on CBSN and our beloved podcast platform. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. Again, I want to give my thanks to David Becker, our CBS election law expert. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. David Becker, CBS election law expert, is my special guest because we have been taking apart bit by bit, case by case, state by state, the grievances, the falsehoods, the slanders, all the things associated with the post-election 2020 aftermath, the most grotesque and malevolent manifestation of that viewed by the entire world in a shocked America January 6th at the United States Capitol. We're going to lighten it up just a teeny bit here because that's what we try to accomplish on the Takeout Outtake Especial. So David and I uh, have gotten to know each other really well uh, during the election. It's been one of the few pleasures and surprising ups, if you will, of 2020, which had a lot of downs and a lot of sideways to it. I don't think I'm giving anyone anything they don't know about that. And I know he's a big jazz fan, so let's start there. So, David, we have three threshold questions we always ask on this program. Um, so I'll start with you on music. When you're going to indulge yourself musically by genre or artist, what are you most likely to listen to all time or one of your favorite movies and most influential book in your life? Oh, boy. This is hard. I wish you had given me these ahead of time. Um, the music one is We never easy. do that. We never, you got to know the show. That's the only way you get to know. I just saw you yesterday. You could have given me a clue. Um so uh, music's easy, jazz, uh, particularly jazz from uh, approximately the mid-50s to uh, mid-60s, bebop, uh, specifically Miles Davis, um, and particularly the period of time when Herbie Hancock was playing with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'll just say briefly, I ran into Herbie Hancock once. I used to live in LA. I am not, I'm not one of these people who like sees stars and like tries to like go and say hi to them or is starstruck by them. I saw Herbie Hancock and I had to go up to him and shake his hand. Cause I just think he's a truly great man. And one of the great artists who is living today. Um, yeah. So, and that, and you'll see that this is my, my little trumpet guy up here that, that I bought. Right. I, I played trumpet right. for many years. Not very well though. So, so just to continue that conversation ever so briefly, uh, do you ride along those jazz waves with Herbie into the sort of techno funk sound as well? You know, I don't. I, I kind of diverge <laughs> from Miles in his, you know, 
um, kind of in his bitches brew phase. I kind of yes. diverge a little bit from that, but that doesn't take away from his artistry. I mean, it just might not be. There are artists who I think are really great. I'll probably get into trouble here. Like I think Bruce Springsteen is a great artist. I don't really enjoy listening to his music, but I totally mm-hmm. understand people who do. Yep. Um, but and and that's kind of the way I feel about Miles at that at that time and Herbie certainly during the um, the rocket phase of his uh, right. MTV career. No doubt. Uh, one of your all time favorite movies or favorite movie. Uh, boy, so it's hard to boil down to one. I'm going to go with my, a comedy. Um, I, I probably one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite is Blazing Saddles. And, <laughs> and what I constantly say to people, I can watch Blazing Saddles over and over and over and over again. And I almost just used uh, an analogy from it when I, when, um, when you were, when you were talking and that you talk prettier than a $20 whore, which is a line from Blazing Saddles. Um, but, uh, I encourage people to watch it. Because yeah. actually, if you if you watch it, it is one of the most um, uh, introspective movies about racism there is. Yes, yes. It is- People now think of it as a triggering movie that it's so shocking, but it takes taboo humor of that time and completely inverts it in a masterful and I think a genius sort of way. What I love about Mel Brooks is he understands that the thing that tyrants and bigots hate most is ridicule. And this traces back, whether it's blazing saddles and the ridicule of racists, or it's the producers and the ridicule of Nazis and Hitler Correct. It is genius. And I hope he stays alive long enough to write a musical or a movie about Trump. Cause I think it would be fantastic. Yes. Couldn't agree more. So um, most influential book in your life? It's hard to say if I have a single most influential book, but a book that I've, I've, I've read and reread recently that meant a lot to me was The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. Um, and uh, for those that haven't read it, it is, it, it's, it's alternative history, which is unusual for him. Imagining a world in 1940 where Charles Lindbergh actually does run for the Republican nomination, wins it on an American for America first platform and becomes president, defeats FDR in 1940. And what ends up happening in the years after that, from the perspective, as often in Philip Roth books of a Jewish family in Newark, New Jersey. Um, Correct. And it is um, I read it um, several years before the Trump presidency, but then I reread it after Trump got elected. And it had a it, it, I, I was reading it through a completely different lens. It was like a different book. Um, but equally good. And I encourage anyone to read it. I think it's a, he, he's, he's an American. I personally think he's one of the most insightful authors out there. Um, some of those other stuff that I, that has just really resonated with me, American pastoral and the human stain, both amazing books. Yes. And, um, for those who are interested, um, we had the person who developed that into an HBO show, uh, at David's, uh, Can someone jump in my ear and tell me? David Simon. Yeah. David Simon. I had it right. Okay. Thank you, Arden. I just want to make sure I had it right. David Simon. Go back to our archives. You can hear an entire show where he talks about not only his work on The Wire and other things he wrote about true crime, but about developing that Philip Roth novel into a great and celebrated and critically acclaimed HBO special. David Becker, it's great to see you as always. Thank you for your time this week. Uh, Folks, uh, in podcast land on CBSN, we'll see you here at the takeout next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. 
That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.